Chapter 9 of The New Treasure Seekers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chloe Winters. The New Treasure Seekers by Edith Nesbitt. Chapter 9 The Flying Lodger. Father knows a man called Eustace Sandal. I do not know how to express his inside soul, but I have heard Father say he means well. He is a vegetarian, and a primitive social something, and an all-wooler and things like that, and he is really as good as he can stick, only most awfully dull. I believe he eats bread and milk from choice. Well, he has great magnificent dreams about all the things you can do for other people, and he wants to distill cultivatedness into the sort of people who live in model workmen's dwellings and teach them to live up to better things. This is what he says. So he gives concerts in Camberwell and places like that, and curates come from far and near to sing about bold bandoleros and the song of the bow, and people who have escaped being curates give comic recitings, and he is sure that it does everyone good, and gives them glimpses of the life beautiful. He said that. Oswald heard him with his own trustworthy ears. Anyway, the people enjoy the concerts no end, and that's the great thing. Well, he came one night, with a lot of tickets he wanted to sell, and father bought some for the servants, and Dora happened to go in to get the gum for a kite we were making, and Mr. Sandal said, Well, my little maiden, would you not like to come on Thursday evening and share in the task of raising our poor brothers and sisters to the higher levels of culture? So, of course, Dora said she would, very much. Then he explained about the concert, calling her My Little One and Dear Child, which Alice never would have borne. But Dora is not of a sensitive nature, and hardly minds what she is called, so long as it is not names, which she does not deem dear child and satira to be, though Oswald would. Dora was quite excited about it, and the stranger so worked upon her feelings that she accepted the deep responsibility of selling tickets, and for a week there was no bearing her. I believe she did sell nine, to people in Lewisham and New Cross who knew no better, and father bought tickets for all of us, and when the eventful evening dawned we went to Camberwell by train and tram via Miss Blake. That means we shouldn't have been allowed to go without her. The tram ride was rather jolly, but when we got out and walked we felt like alone in London or Jessica's first prayer, because Camberwell is a devastating region that makes you think of rickety attics with the wind whistling through them or miserable cellars where forsaken children do wonders by pawning their relations' clothes and looking after the baby. It was a dampish night, and we walked on greasy mud, and as we walked along Alice kicked against something on the pavement, and it chinked, and when she picked it up it was five bob rolled up in newspaper. "'I expected somebody's little all,' said Alice, "'and the cup was dashed from their lips just when they were going to joyfully spend it. We ought to give it to the police.' But Miss Blake said no." and that we were late already, so we went on, and Alice held the packet in her muff throughout the concert which ensued. I will not tell you anything about the concert, except that it was quite fairly jolly. You must have been to these self-raising concerts in the course of your young lives. When it was over we reasoned with Miss Blake, and she let us go through the light blue paper door beside the stage and find Mr. Sandal. We thought he might happen to hear who had lost the five-bob and return it to its sorrowing family. He was in a great hurry, but he took the chink, and said he'd let us know if anything happened. Then we went home very cheerful, singing bits of the comic songs a bishop's son had done in the concert, and little thinking what we were taking home with us. 
It was only a few days after this, or perhaps a week, that we all began to be rather cross. Alice, usually as near a brick as a girl can go, was the worst of the lot, and if you said what you thought of her she instantly began to snivel. And we all had awful colds, and our handkerchiefs gave out, and then our heads ached. Oswald's head was particularly hot, I remember, and he wanted to rest it on the backs of chairs or on tables or anything steady. But why prolong the painful narrative? What we had brought home from Camberwell was the measles, and as soon as the grown-ups recognized the grim intruder for the fell disease it is, we all went to bed, and there was an end of active adventure for some time. Of course, when you begin to get better there are grapes and other luxuries not of everyday occurrences, but while you're sniffling and fevering in bed, as red as a lobster and blazing hot, you are inclined to think it is a heavy price to pay for any concert, however raising. Mr. Sandal came to see Father the very day we all marched to bedward. He had found the owner of the five shillings. It was a doctor's fee, about to be paid by the parent of a thoroughly measly family. And if we had taken it to the police at once, Alice would not have held it in her hand all through the concert. But I will not blame Blakey. She was a jolly good nurse, and read aloud to us with unfatigable industry while we were getting better. Our having fallen victim to this disgusting complaint ended in our being sent to the seaside. Father could not take us himself, so we went to stay with the sister of Mr. Sandals. She was like him, only more so in every way. The journey was very joyous. Father saw us off at Cannon Street, and we had a carriage to ourselves all the way, and we passed the station where Oswald would not like to be a porter. Rude boys at this station put their heads out of the window and shout, "'Who's a duffer?' and things like that, and the porters have to shout, "'I am!' because Higgum is the name of the station, and porters seldom have any H's with which to protect themselves from this cruel joke. It was a glorious moment when the train swooped out of a tunnel, and we looked over the downs and saw the grey-blue line that was the sea. We had not seen the sea since before Mother died. I believe we older ones all thought of that, and it made us quieter than the younger ones were. I do not want to forget anything, but it makes you feel empty and stupid when you remember some things. There was a good drive in a wagonette after we got to our station. There were primroses under some of the hedges and lots of dog violets, and at last we got to Miss Sandal's house. It is before you come to the village, and it is a little square white house. There is a big old windmill at the back of it. It is not used any more for grinding corn, but fishermen keep their nets in it. Miss Sandal came out of the green gate to meet us. She had a soft, drab dress and a long, thin neck, and her hair was drab too, and it was screwed up tight. She said, "'Welcome, one and all,' in a kind voice, but it was too much like Mr. Sandal's for me, and we went in. She showed us the sitting-rooms and the rooms where we were to sleep, and then she left us to wash our hands and faces. When we were alone, we burst open the doors of our rooms with one consent, and met on the landing with a rush like the great rivers of America. "'Well,' said Oswald, and the others said the same. "'Of all the rummy cribs,' remarked Dicky. "'It's like a workhouse, or a hospital,' said Dora. "'I think I like it.' "'It makes me think of bald-headed gentlemen,' said H.O. "'It is so bare.' "'It was. All the walls were white plaster. The furniture was white deal, what there was of it, which was precious little. There were no carpets, only white matting, and there was not a single ornament in a single room. There was a clock on the dining-room mantelpiece, but that could not be counted as an ornament because of the useful side of its character. There were only about six pictures, 
all of a brownish color. One was the blind girl sitting on an orange with a broken fiddle. It is called Hope. When we were clean, Miss Sandal gave us tea. As we sat down, she said, The motto of our little household is plain living and high thinking. And some of us feared for an instant that this might mean not enough to eat. But fortunately, this was not the case. There was plenty, but all of a milky, bunny, fruity, vegetable sort. We soon got used to it, and liked it all right. Miss Sandal was very kind. She offered to read aloud to us after tea, and, exchanging glances of despair, some of us said that we should like it very much. It was Oswald who found the manly courage to say very politely, "'Would it be all the same to you if we went and looked at the sea first, because—' And she said, "'Not at all,' adding something about, "'Nature, the dear old nurse, taking somebody on her knee, and let us go.' We asked her which way, and we tore up the road and through the village and on to the sea-wall, and then with six joyous bounds we leaped down on to the sand. The author will not bother you with the description of the mighty billows of ocean, which you must have read about, if not seen, but he will just say what perhaps you are not aware of, that seagulls eat clams and mussels and cockles, and crack the shells with their beaks. The author has seen this done. You also know, I suppose, that you can dig in the sand, if you have a spade, and make sand-castles, and stay in them till the tide washes you out. I will say no more, except that when we gazed upon the sea and the sand we felt we did not care tuppence how highly Miss Sandal might think of us, or how plainly she might make us live, so long as we had got the briny deep to go down to. It was too early in the year and too late in the day to bathe, but we paddled, which comes to much the same thing, and you almost always have to change everything afterwards. When it got dark we had to go back to the White House, and there was supper, and then we found that Miss Sandal did not keep a servant, so of course we offered to help wash up. H.O. only broke two plates. Nothing worth telling about happened till we had been there over a week, and got to know the Coast Guards and a lot of the village people quite well. I do like Coast Guards. They seem to know everything you want to hear about. Miss Sandal used to read to us out of poetry books, and about a chap called Thoreau who could tickle fish, and they liked it, and let him. She was kind, but rather like her house. There was something bare and bald about her inside mind, I believe. She was very, very calm, and said that people who lost their tempers were not living the higher life. But one day a telegram came, and then she was not calm at all. She got quite like other people and quite shoved H.O. for getting in her way when she was looking for her purse to pay for the answer to the telegram. Then she said to Dora, and she was pale and her eyes red, just like people who live the lower or ordinary life, "'My dears, it's dreadful! My poor brother! He's had a fall! I must go to him at once!' And she sent Oswald to order the fly from the old ship hotel, and the girls to see if Mrs. Beale would come and take care of us while she was away." Then she kissed us all, and went off very unhappy. We heard afterwards that poor, worthy Mr. Sandal had climbed a scaffolding to give a workman a tract about drink, and he didn't know the proper part of the scaffolding to stand on. The workman did, of course, so he fetched down half a dozen planks and the workman, and if a dust-cart hadn't happened to be passing just under so that they fell into it, their lives would not have been spared. As it was, Mr. Sandal broke his arm and his head. The workman escaped unscathed, but furious. The workman was a teetotaler. Mrs. Beale came, and the first thing she did was to buy a leg of mutton and cook it. 
It was the first meat we had had since arriving at Limchurch. "'I spect you can't afford good butcher's meat,' said Mrs. Beale. "'But your pa, I expect he pays for you, and I lay he'd like you to have your fill of something as a lay across your chesties.' So she made a Yorkshire pudding as well. It was good. After dinner we sat on the seawall, feeling more like after dinner than we had felt for days, and Dora said, "'Poor Miss Sandal, I never thought about her being hard up somehow. I wish we could do something to help her.' "'We might go out street singing,' Noel said. But that was no good, because there is only one street in the village, and the people there are much too poor for one to be able to ask them for anything. And all around it is fields with only sheep, who have nothing to give except their wool, and when it comes to taking that, they are never asked. Dora thought we might get father to give her money, but Oswald knew this would never do. Then suddenly a thought struck someone, I will not say who, and that someone said, "'She ought to let lodgings, like all the other people do in Limchurch.' That was the beginning of it. The end, for that day, was our getting the top of a cardboard box and printing on it the following lines in as many different colored chalks as we happened to have with us. "'Lodgings to let, inquire inside.' We ruled spaces for the letters to go in, and did it very neatly. When we went to bed we stuck it in our bedroom window with stamp paper. In the morning, when Oswald drew up his blind, there was quite a crowd of kids looking at the card. Mrs. Beale came out and shooed them away as if they were hens, and we did not have to explain the card to her at all. She never said anything about it. I never knew such a woman as Mrs. Beale for minding her own business. She said afterwards she supposed Miss Sandal had told us to put up the card. Well, two or three days went by and nothing happened. Only we had a letter from Miss Sandal telling us how the poor sufferer was groaning, and one from Father telling us to be good children and not get into scrapes, and people who drove by used to look at the card and laugh. And then one day a carriage came driving up with a gentleman in it, and he saw the rainbow beauty of our chalked card, and then got out and came up the path. He had a pale face and white hair and very bright eyes that moved about quickly like a bird's, and he was dressed in a quite new tweed suit that did not fit him very well. Dora and Alice answered the door before anyone had time to knock, and the author has reason to believe their hearts were beating wildly. "'How much?' said the gentleman shortly. Alice and Dora were so surprised by his suddenness that they could only reply, "'Um, uh, just so.' said the gentleman briskly, as Oswald stepped modestly forward and said, "'Won't you come inside?' "'The very thing,' said he, and came in. We showed him into the dining-room and asked him to excuse us a minute, and then held a breathless council outside the door. "'It depends on how many rooms he wants,' said Dora. "'Let's say so much a room,' said Dicky, "'and extra if he wants Mrs. Beale to wait on him. So we decided to do this. We thought a pound a room seemed fair, and we went back.' "'How many rooms do you want?' Oswald asked. "'All the room there is,' said the gentleman. "'They are a pound each,' said Oswald, "'and extra for Mrs. Beale. "'How much together?' Oswald thought a minute and then said, Nine rooms is nine pounds and two pounds a week for Mrs. Beale "'because she is a widow.' "'Done,' said the gentleman. "'I'll go and fetch my portmanteau.' "'He bounced up and out and got into his carriage and drove away.' It was not till he was finally gone quite beyond recall that Alice suddenly said, "'But if he has all the rooms, where are we going to sleep?' "'He must be awfully rich,' said H.O., "'wanting all those rooms.' 
"'Well, he can't sleep in more than one at once,' said Dicky. "'however rich he is. "'We might wait till he has bedded down "'and then sleep in the rooms he didn't want.' "'But Oswald was firm. "'He knew that if the man paid for the rooms, "'he must have them to himself. "'He won't sleep in the kitchen,' said Dora. "'Couldn't we sleep there?' "'But we all said we couldn't, and wouldn't. "'Then Alice suddenly said, "'I know the mill! "'There are heaps and heaps of fishing nets there.' and we could each take a blanket like Indians and creep over under cover of the night after the beal has gone, and get back before she comes in the morning. It seemed a sporting thing to do, and we agreed. Only Dora said she thought it would be drafty. Of course we went over to the mill at once to lay our plans and prepare for the silent watches of the night. There are three stories to a windmill, besides the ground floor. The first floor is pretty empty, the next is nearly full of millstones and machinery, and the one above is where the corn runs down from on to the millstones. We settled to let the girls have the first floor, which was covered with heaps of nets, and we would pig in with the millstones on the floor above. We had just secretly got out the last of the six blankets from the house, and got it into the mill disguised in a clothes basket, when we heard wheels, and there was the gentleman back again. He had only got one portmanteau after all, and that was a very little one. Mrs. Beale was bobbing at him in the doorway when we got up, of course, we had told her he had rented rooms, but we had not said how many, for fear she would ask us where we were going to sleep, and we had a feeling that but few grown-ups would like our sleeping in a mill, however much we were living the higher life by sacrificing ourselves to get money from Miss Sandal. The gentleman ordered sheep's head and trotters for dinner, and when he found he could not have that, he said, "'Gammon and spinach!' But there was not any spinach in the village, so he had to fall back on eggs and bacon. Mrs. Beale cooked it, and when he had fallen back on it she washed up and went home, and we were left. We could hear the gentleman singing to himself, something about wooding he was a bird that he might fly to thee. Then we got the lanterns that you take when you go up street on a dark night, and we crept over to the mill. It was much darker than we expected. We decided to keep our clothes on, partly for warmness and partly in case of any sudden alarm or the fishermen wanting their nets in the middle of the night, which sometimes happens if the tide is favorable. We let the girls keep the lantern, and we went up with a bit of candle Dickie had saved and tried to get comfortable among the millstones and machinery. But it was not easy, and Oswald, for one, was not sorry when he heard the voice of Dora calling in trembling tones from the floor below. "'Oswald! Dickie!' said the voice. "'I wish one of you would come down a sec.' Oswald flew to the assistance of his distressed sister. "'It's only that we're a little bit uncomfortable,' she whispered. "'I didn't want to yell it out because of Noel and H.O. "'I don't want to frighten them, "'but I can't help feeling that if anything popped out of the dark at us I should die. "'Can't you all come down here? "'The nets are quite comfortable, and I do wish you would.' "'Alice said she was not frightened, but supposed there were rats, "'which are said to infest old buildings, especially mills. "'So we consented to come down, "'and we told Noel and H.O. to come down because it was more comfy.' and it is easier to settle yourself for the night among fishing nets than among machinery. There was a rustling now and then among the heap of broken chairs and jack planes and baskets and spades and hoes and bits of the spars of ships at the far end of our sleeping apartment, but Dickie and Oswald resolutely said it was the wind or else jackdaws making their nests, though of course they knew this is not done at night. Sleeping in a mill was not nearly the fun we had thought it would be, somehow, for one thing it was horrid not having a pillow, and the fishing nets were so stiff you could not bench them up properly to make one, 
and unless you have been born and bred a red Indian, you do not know how to manage your blanket so as to make it keep out the draughts. And when we had put out the light, Oswald more than once felt as though earwigs and spiders were walking on his face in the dark. But when we struck a match, there was nothing there. And empty mills do creak and rustle and move about in a very odd way. Oswald was not afraid, but he did think we might as well have slept in the kitchen, because the gentleman could not have wanted to use that when he was asleep. You see, we thought then that he would sleep all night like other people. We got to sleep at last, and in the night the girls edged up to their bold brothers, so that when the morning sun shone in bars of dusty gold through the chinks of the aged edifice, and woke us up, we were all lying in a snuggly heap like a litter of puppies. "'Oh, I am so stiff,' said Alice, stretching. "'I never slept in my clothes before. It makes me feel as if I had been starched and ironed like a boy's collar.' We all felt pretty much the same, and our faces were tired too, and stiff, which was rum, and the author cannot account for it, unless it really was spiders that walked on us. I believe the ancient Greeks considered them to be venomous, and perhaps that's how their venom influences their victims.' "'I think Mills are merely beastly,' remarked H.O. when we had woke him up. "'You can't wash yourself or brush your hair or anything.' "'You aren't always so jolly particular about your hair,' said Dicky. "'Don't be so disagreeable,' said Dora, and Dicky rejoined, "'Disagreeable yourself. "'There is certainly something about sleeping in your clothes "'that makes you feel not so kind and polite as usual.' I expect this is why tramps are so fierce and knock people down in lonely roads and kick them. Oswald knows he felt just like kicking anyone if they had happened to cheek him the least little bit. But by a fortunate accident, nobody did. The author believes there is a picture called Hopeless Dawn. We felt exactly like that. Nothing seemed the least bit of good. It was a pitiful band with hands and faces dirtier than anyone would believe who had not slept in a mill— or witnessed others who had done so, that crossed the wet green grass between the mill and the white house. "'I shan't ever put morning dew into my poetry again,' Noel said. "'It is not nearly so poetical as people make out, and it is as cold as ice right through your boots.' We felt rather better when we had had a good splash in the brick-paved back kitchen that Miss Sandal calls the bathroom, and Alice made a fire and boiled a kettle, and we had some tea and eggs.' Then we looked at the clock, and it was half-past five, so we hastened to get into another of the house before Mrs. Beale came. "'I wish we tried to live the higher life some less beastly way,' said Dicky as we went along the passage. "'Living the higher life always hurts at the beginning,' Alice said. "'I expect it's like new boots. Only when you've got used to it you're glad you bore it at first. Let's listen at the doors till we find out where he isn't sleeping.' So we listened at all the bedroom doors, but not a snore was heard. "'Perhaps he was a burglar,' said H.O., "'and only pretended to want lodgings so as to get in and bone all the valuables.' "'There aren't any valuables,' said Noel. And this was quite true, for Miss Sandal had no silver or jewellery, except a brooch of pewter, and the very teaspoons were of wood, very hard to keep clean and having to be scraped. "'Perhaps he sleeps without snoring,' said Oswald. "'Some people do.' "'Not old gentlemen,' said Noel. "'Think of our Indian uncle. H.O. used to think it was bears at first. "'Perhaps he rises with the lark,' said Alice, "'and is wondering why Brecker isn't ready.' "'So then we listened at the sitting-room doors, "'and through the keyhole of the parlour "'we heard a noise of someone moving, 
and then in a soft whistle the tune of the Would I Wore a Bird song. So then we went into the dining room to sit down, but when we opened the door we almost fell in a heap on the matting, and no one had breath for a word, not even for crikey, which was what we all thought. I have read of people who could not believe their eyes, and I have always thought it such rot of them, but now, as the author gazed on the scene, he really could not be quite sure that he was not in a dream, and that the gentleman and the knight in the mill weren't dreams too. "'Pull back the curtains,' Alice said, and we did. I wish I could make the reader feel as astonished as we did. The last time we had seen the room, the walls had been bare and white. Now they were covered with the most splendid drawings you can think of, all done in colored chalk. I don't mean mixed up, like we do with our chalks. But one picture was done in green, and another in brown, and another in red, and so on. And the chalk must have been of some fat, radiant kind, quite unknown to us, for some of the lines were over an inch thick. "'How perfectly lovely!' Alice said. "'He must have sat up all night to do it. He is good.' I expect he's trying to live the higher life, too, just going about doing secretly and spending his time making other people's houses pretty. I wonder what he'd have done if the room had had a large pattern of brown roses on it, like Mrs. Beale's, said Noel. I say, look at that angel. Isn't it poetical? It makes me feel I must write something about it. It was a good angel, all drawn in grey, that was, with very wide wings going right across the room and a whole bundle of lilies in his arms. Then there were seagulls and ravens and butterflies, and ballet girls with butterflies' wings, and a man with artificial wings being fastened on, and you could see he was just going to jump off a rock. And there were fairies and bats and flying foxes and flying fish, and one glorious winged horse done in red chalk, and his wings went from one side of the room to the other and crossed the angels. There were dozens and dozens of birds, all done in just a few lines, but exactly right. You couldn't make any mistake about what anything was meant for. And all the things, whatever they were, had wings to them. How Oswald wishes that those pictures had been done in his house! While we stood gazing, the door of the other room opened, and the gentleman stood before us, more covered with different colored chalks than I should have thought he could have got, even with all of those drawings. And he had a thing made of wire and paper in his hand, and he said, "'Wouldn't you like to fly?' "'Yes,' said everyone. "'Well, then,' he said, "'I've got a nice little flying machine here. I'll fit it on to one of you, and then you jump out of the attic window. You don't know what it's like to fly.' We said we would rather not. "'But I insist,' said the gentleman. "'I have your real interest at heart, my children. I can't allow you in your ignorance to reject the chance of a lifetime.' We still said no thank you and we began to feel very uncomfy, for the gentleman's eyes were now rolling wildly. "'Then I'll make you,' he said, catching hold of Oswald. "'You jolly well won't,' cried Dicky, catching hold of the arm of the gentleman. Then Dora said very primly, and speaking rather slowly, and she was very pale, "'I think it would be lovely to fly. Will you just show me how the flying machine looks when it is unfolded?' The gentleman dropped Oswald, and Dora made go, go with her lips without speaking, while he began to unfold the flying machine. The others went, Oswald lingering last, and then in an instant Dora had nipped out of the room and banged the door and locked it. 
to the mill she cried and we ran like mad and got in and barred the big door and went up to the first floor and looked out of the big window to warn off mrs beale and we thumped dora on the back and dicky called her a sherlock holmes and noel said she was a heroine it wasn't anything dora said just before she began to cry only i remember reading that you must pretend to humour them and then get away for of course i saw at once he was a lunatic oh how awful it might have been he could have made us all jump out of the attic window and there would have been no one left to tell father oh oh and then the crying began but we were proud of dora and i am sorry we make fun of her sometimes but it is difficult not to we decided to signal the first person that passed and we got alice to take off her red flannel petticoat for a signal the first people who came were two men in a dog cart we waved the signalizing petticoat and they pulled up and one got out and came up to the mill we explained about the lunatic and the wanting us to jump out of the windows righto cried the man to the one still in the cart got him and the other hitched the horse to the gate and over and the other went to the house come along down young ladies and gentlemen said the second man when he had been told he's as gentle as a lamb he does not think it hurts to jump out of windows he thinks it really is flying he'll be like an angel when he sees the doctor we asked if he had been mad before because we had thought he might have suddenly gone so certainly he has replied the man he has never been so to say himself since tumbling out of a flying machine he went up in with a friend he was an artist previous to that an excellent one i believe but now he only draws objects with wings and now and then he wants to make people fly perfect strangers sometimes like yourselves yes miss i am his attendant and his pictures often amuse me by the half hours together poor gentleman how did he get away alice asked well miss the poor gentleman's brother got hurt and mr sidney that's him inside seemed wonderfully put out and hung over the body in a way pitiful to see but really he was extracting the cash from the sufferer's pockets then while all of us were occupied with mr eustace mr sidney just packs his portmanteau and out he goes by the back door when we missed him we sent for dr baker but by the time he came it was too late to get here dr baker said at once he'd revert to his boyhood's home and the doctor has proved correct we had all come out of the mill and with this polite person we went to the gate and saw the lunatic get into the carriage very gentle and gay but doctor oswald said he did say he'd give nine pounds a week for the rooms oughtn't he to pay you might have known he was mad to say that said the doctor no why should he when it's his own sister's house gee up and he left us it was sad to find the gentleman was not a higher life after all but only mad and i was more sorry than ever for poor miss sandal as oswald pointed out to the girls they are much more blessed in their brothers than miss sandal is and they ought to be more grateful than they are. End of chapter 9 Recorded by Chloe Winters